You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at HouseOfCardsRadio.com. You know what cheers me up? What? Rolled up aces over king. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. The House of Cards. Today, the game is different. With author and professional poker player Ashley Adams. Okay, you have some skill. Good evening, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards. We have a great show tonight. It's different from most of our shows. It is, for lack of a better term, an intellectual show. Two very smart, interesting guests. The first is David Schwartz, who's the director of the UNLV Center for Gaming Research in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, he is a scholar and historian who is going to talk to us about the history of gambling, the history of poker, and then some of the business of it and the future of it. But what a fascinating guy who answers all my questions easily uh, about the gambling history that we'll talk about. Then we're going to talk to another very smart guy, uh, a guy who has done many different things and has just written a book with David Sklansky called Do You See Why? He is uh, the author of a regular column in Card Player Magazine on the psychology of poker, the author of a book called The Psychology of Poker, Alan Schoonmaker, and uh, I'm eager to talk to him as well. So please stay tuned. We'll also have, of course, the mailbag, and uh, I think you'll enjoy the show a lot. Stay tuned. Great Moments in History In July 1937, Amelia Earhart was informed by her navigator, Fred Noonan, that they were off course over the Pacific Ocean. You're wrong! You just sit here telling me that I'm not intended to... Can I hold the f***? No. no. Can I hold the f***? No. That is so not cool. In June 2008, House of Cards began podcasting. Go to HouseOfCardsRadio.com and click on the podcast button for all recent show downloads. Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. I just wanted to let you know about a newspaper in the New England area. If you're looking for poker tournaments or the latest promotions at Foxwoods, Mohegan Sun, Twin River, or if you want to find out what's happening in Las Vegas, Atlantic City, or other casinos around the country, then I recommend you check out New England Gaming News for all the latest news, events, and hot casino action from around the region. You can do that in one of two ways. You can either pick up their free copies at gambling venues throughout New England, or you can visit them at www.thenegn.com and sign up for exclusive specials and promotions. That's www.thenegn.com. The New England Gaming News, New England's only resource for complete casino and poker news. You're listening to the House of Cards. Poker. 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 I shall give it to you in a word. Poker. Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards, and we have a treat. Uh, 
just I'm almost speechless because this is the type of guest that I get very excited about. This is not a professional poker player. This is not a poker room manager. This is somebody who is a scholar and expert in the field of gaming. It is David Schwartz, the director of the UNLV Center for Gaming Research. He is um, a scholar, Ph.D. in U.S. history, and we're going to talk about gaming history. David Schwartz, are you there? I sure am. Good. Well, tell us first, I mean, for Truth in Advertising, what is the UNLV Center for Gaming Research? Well, it's a unit in the library that tries to encourage the academic study of gambling. We have a fellowship program where we bring people in for a month or so to do research. Uh, we also we have a huge collection of materials about gambling, including poker, you know, stuff going back centuries. We've got, you know, books and French, Spanish, dealing with the, the evolution of gambling. And uh, we also have a website that's at gaming.unlv.edu. Wait, 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 wait. Slow down on the site just so that if people are listening, they can write it down. What is the site? Yeah. It's gaming.unlv.edu. Great. What would you say of... is your prize possession? You said you have lots of old gambling stuff. If you were to name one or two things in your collection that you are most pr- proud of or that are the most valuable, what would they be? I think probably the first edition of Cardano's autobiography. You know, we have a first edition of that, and that was one of the first books really written about gambling. So it's who is Cardano? Cardano was a guy who lived in the 16th century who really discovered, laid down a lot of the laws about probability and that sort of thing. Kind of started to get the ball rolling with the study of the mathematical study of gambling, which also had a lot to do with probability back then. So, pretty important guy, and it's it's pretty interesting stuff. Okay, well, let's. I have two big questions. One of them, I guess, is kind of silly, and let's get that out of the way first. When did gambling change its name to gaming, and why did it? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, if you look back at a lot of the British laws going back into the 16th century, they call it gaming. And the law that legalized gambling in Nevada back in for the first time, back in 1869, calls it gaming. You know, I think the activity has always been called gambling, but legally people have called it gaming. So I think that's that's uh, probably your answer right there. Okay, that's a very good answer. I, I always thought that it was to uh, cleanse the negative Im- image that gambling has by changing the name to gaming. But the truth is, if I understand you correctly, that gaming has always been the technical term, and gambling was the actual activity that yeah. people engaged in. Okay. That, yeah, and that the, the, first bo- the first book about how to win at gambling, the first book like that, was actually called The Complete Gamester, not The Complete Gamster, so, so Gambler. So, you know, gaming is actually the older term. I have The Complete Gamester, a reproduction, of mm-hmm. course, but when was mm-hmm. that written? It was written, I believe, in the 16th century. I see. What language? Was it in English? In English, yeah. But it was Elizabethan English? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Well, here's the bigger question, which is why and how did gambling become something evil or bad as opposed to something fun and positive? Well, I think it's because there's a lot of potential for bad there. People get carried away. I think part of it was people were afraid of that. I think also it's a very disruptive force in a lot of ways. You know, people winning money at gambling suggests that maybe hard work isn't the only way to win money, and I think people kind of looked a little askance at that. So I think it's it's really people were afraid of it for personal reasons or also for social reasons that it would disrupt the social order. So gambling has always been viewed negatively, and 
is it you think you didn't mention the church in that? Is there something morally evil about it or is it just something that could lead to evil or to bad results? Well, there's nothing really in the Christian or Jewish Bible that says gambling is bad. You know, a lot of that's by inference. Gambling is never really mentioned there. You know, really a lot of this is older stuff. You know, it goes back to even older religions with myths and that sort of thing where gambling is cast in negative light. So I think really it's a a sense not that gambling itself is sinful in a lot of religions, just that it's decadent and being decadent might be sinful. Okay, so there's nothing in the Bible that expressly prohibits gambling. In fact, if I remember my uh, Jewish Bible correctly, there are actually incidents of the drawing of lots and gambling in the Bible. Is that right? Yeah, they do. Uh, This is a point that I made in my book, Roll the Bones, the History of Gambling. There's actually a lot of cases in the Bible where they do use this kind of gambling. And really, this is how gambling in a lot of ways started. It's a... something called divination, where you're using some kind of randomizing element to try to figure out what God or the gods wants you to do. Politically, it's a really good way of making a decision without making a decision. You say, well, hey, this is what the gods say. Don't blame me. I'm, you know, I'm just a messenger here. So that's, that's a pretty old thing. And how, how is it mentioned in the Bible? Can you tell us a story in the Bible that includes gambling? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a great example. When Joshua and the 12 tribes of Israel are crossing over into the land of Israel. They've got a lot of land that they have to divide up by the tribes. And obviously some land is going to be better than other land. And you don't, you know, maybe it's not the kind of decision that you want Joshua to be making because then there's charges that he would be show favoritism to one side or the other. So they cast lots for it. So if any tribe doesn't like their land, hey, take it up with the big guy upstairs. Don't take it up with me. What is casting lots? What is that exactly? Basically, it's rolling dice. Did they have dice in the, at the time of Joshua? They actually oh, had dice? Absolutely. They have dice go back about 7,000 years or so. So dice are pretty old. Well, they say throwing the bones. They were literally uh, knuckle bones or something? What's the origin of uh, dice? Yeah, originally they were the ankle bones of goats and sheep that they eventually filed down and eventually, after a couple hundred, maybe 2,000 years, started making them out of ivory. But originally they were the bones of goats and sheep. And how did the spots get started? Spots got started because originally the bones were not regularly shaped. So you knew, you know, this side is the oblong side, this side is the other side. You knew that with the spots, it was just a way of saying, okay, we've got six sides. This will determine which side is which. So when dice got started as manufactured out of ivory, were they always six-sided? Was there some significance to the six sides? Were there some cultures where they had five-sided dice, eight-sided dice? Two, I mean, they couldn't have two-sided dice. That would be a coin, I guess. But have they always been six-sided? Pretty much. You know, cubicle dice have always been six-sided. There are, you know, you can have 20-sided dice. Anybody who ever played Dungeons & Dragons knows that. You know, you can have these D20s and, and that sort of thing, you know, for rolling hit points or whatever you're doing. So there, there's always been a bunch of different kinds of dice, but the most popular have always been the six-sided dice. Do we have a polygenesis of gambling, or did gambling really, can you trace it to one spot and then it spread out? What was the actual, I mean, did it start in China? Where did it start, and did it start in many places? Pretty much it started in many places. You know, well, there was actually two theories here. Either it started in one place very early on, you know, the way language did, 
or it started in many different places a little bit later on. Whatever it is, it seems that whenever you have a bunch of people together who have any kind of goods or money and any kind of time in their hands, you have some form of gambling. So it seems to be nearly universal. Okay. God, I got a million questions that I, I'm going to just keep shooting at you. If you think that uh, you want to steer it to something else, feel free. But um, there are ethnic stereotypes, and I'm wondering if there is some um, anthropological reason for them or if they're just like a lot of stereotypes that are unfair. People think of Asians, Chinese, as being big gamblers. Is there any connection to other things in the Chinese or Asian culture that may have given rise to that stereotype or given rise to a particular interest in gambling from uh, Eastern countries? Well, it's hard to say, and it's definitely difficult to overgeneralize, and everybody has their own approach, but definitely Chinese um, people in China are definitely big gamblers. I think you don't have to look any further than Macau for proof of that. You know, this year they're probably going to make about $20 billion in gaming revenue compared to probably less than $10 billion for the entire state of Nevada. So, you know... Say that again. Macau this year is going to make about $20 billion in revenue, and the whole state of Nevada, you know, Las Vegas, Reno, everything is going to make probably less than $10 billion. How, how can that be? What's the big game in Macau that's responsible for all that unbelievable revenue? Baccarat. There's a lot of Baccarat being played there for a lot of money. Okay, well, I've watched Baccarat, and I, I don't understand something. Mm-hmm. People that play Baccarat, it doesn't take much understanding of probability and statistics to see that the the bank or the player, the or, the number of times that the bank has won in a row or the number of times that the player has run in a, won in a row, that that does not affect the next outcome. It doesn't take much knowledge. Mm-hmm. And yet, whenever I have watched people playing Baccarat, I have seen sheets of paper that people are feverishly filling out to try to divine a pattern. Why is that? What is the, what is the fascination with trying to divine a pattern of whether it's the bank or the player who has won and how many times in a row they've won? Well, I think it's one of the rituals around the game, which is important for any game, you know, even games like skill games that have skill like poker, people still have some rituals that they do that kind of helps them get in the zone a little better. And, you know, looking for the patterns in randomness is something that goes back to roulette. You know, for about 300 years, people have been trying to beat the game of roulette and figure out a system, and nobody's found a system yet. So I think that's something that no matter how many times you say it's all random, it's an in, you know, it's not a dependent decision, it's not a dependent outcome, people are still going to try to figure that out. Have there been moments of surprising or significant innovation in gambling where you could look back over the last 7,000 years of people gambling and say, well, these eight uh, inventions or eight uh, adaptations are really the most significant ones? Can you point to any historically that have made the biggest difference? Yeah, absolutely. We've got you know the invention of dice about five or 7,000 years ago. Coming further further closer, you know, about 11, you know, 1,000 or 1,100 A.D., you've got the invention of cards in China, and they filter across uh, Asia and eventually end up in Europe sometime in the 14th century. So that's a pretty significant innovation there, playing cards. You know, before you had playing cards, it was pretty much either flip a coin or roll a die. 
So it's pretty much a one in six chance for anything. Once you're playing cards, you've got a one in 52 chance, and it makes games a lot more easier. You know, after that, you've got the development of a lot of, of, a lot of different games, and I think really some of the most interesting stuff to happen in gambling happened in the U.S., where in a very short period of time, you've got the game of craps being invented in and around New Orleans. You've got the game of poker really coming into its own in that same period, in that same area. So I think that the early part of the 19th century around New Orleans, I think, was also a real crucible for the development of modern gambling. That's where a lot of our games come from. Well, I've been reading the history of poker in dozens of poker books since I was a little boy, and it's a lot of disagreements. Some people try to make it look clear-cut. Some people say it's unclear. You, This is an opportunity I may never have again. You Mm -hmm. are the gaming expert of the world. (laughs) Tell us, as best as you know, with all um, necessary admissions of what we don't know, what is the origin of the game of poker? Well, you know, poker developed out of a lot of other card games that were being played in Europe going back pretty far. And um, one of the better known ones was Poker, which was in, you know, ended up in France. They brought that over to the U.S. The Americans took it, made it a lot more interesting. Instead of just basically getting your cards, betting once, and, you know, the best hand wins, the Americans put bluffing into it. They added, you know, using all 52 cards in the deck. They added discarding and drawing, so they met a draw poker, which made it a lot more interesting. Basically, the Americans took the game and made it a lot more freewheeling, a lot more improvisational, and a lot more entrepreneurial, where it wasn't just you get the cards that you're dealt and you play them out. You know, you could do something with it. The game had a lot more personality. All right, so you're attributing the origin of poker. You're saying that poker came from the French game of poker, which I guess with the Delta accent, maybe poker, or then became yeah. poker. But what about the game of brag? Did brag in England also come out of poker? Were they contemporary games? Did they have separate origins? Are they really the same game? Yeah, I mean, that's also an influence. And there's definitely a lot of these games floating around there that have the same basic idea. You know, if you're playing cards, you can either try to beat the other person's hand, you know, by getting more points, you know, in a game like blackjack. Or you can try to beat them by getting sequences and things like that, which is, you know, what poker does. So there was a lot of these games kind of floating around there doing different things, but really poker is probably the one most likely candidate. When was the gaming chip, uh, as opposed to using money and cash, when did they invent poker chips or gaming chips? A lot of this also dates from the 19th century, places like Monte Carlo, and later filtered over to the United States. Actually, was there's no absolutely the first chip was used at the Banco de Monte Carlo or first used at the El Dorado Club. It just kind of came about. No one's sure exactly when. Yeah, I mean, not that I'm aware of. Certainly, there might be somebody who's done more research in that aspect, but you know, I wasn't able to find one absolute. This is the first time. I believe it might have been at Monte Carlo, but it's hard to say. You know, in, in some accounts of Monte Carlo, they talk about people gambling with cash on the tables, and then later on, you have gambling checks or chips showing up, so it looks like that's around the time that it happened, sometime in the late 19th century. Does your library, uh, does your Center for Gaming Research have the accoutrements of gaming as well, like gaming devices to look at, or is it pretty much just a library and you just have books and monographs and things like that? Pretty Pretty much just books and stuff. We do have a couple of artifacts. You know, we've got a few slot machines. 
We've got a pharaoh kit from back in the 19th century. So we have some stuff like that. But mostly we focus on the books and things like that. Boy, I'll tell you, I would love to see a wedding between your collection of books and Steve Forte's uh, collection of gambling devices. He's out. I don't know if you know him. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever worked with him or done any exhibits with him or, or anything? No, we, we haven't done that. I'm very familiar with his work, though, and it's, uh, it's a good stuff. In the industry, right. I, I was lucky enough to visit his home, and he showed me in a very small space enough stuff like old pharaoh layouts and uh, dice games and cups and uh, all sorts of things and cards and chips and uh, just amazing stuff, holdout devices, that I would think would be a wonderful centerpiece for a major museum on gaming and gambling. And I'm wondering, is there such a museum anywhere that you know of? There isn't, but I think it's a really good idea. You know, I think it would be a great thing for Las Vegas to do, or maybe even for Atlantic City to do. You know, it would be a great thing for for one of the gaming towns to to do this. Mm. Well, I was hoping that maybe the UNLV might be willing to to do something uh, maybe in connection with your center, but that's probably a long way off. They probably have uh, less space than they 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 need for all the yeah. things that they have. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, a couple of questions just about the current day. Um, when I look out over the American landscape and I see um, Pennsylvania just legalized poker, they've had uh, legalized gambling for a while, Ohio is doing it, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, all sorts of places, uh, Delaware, maybe Rhode Island, and gambling is spreading. It's on the Internet. From your perspective, and you have the uh, historic perspective, is the amount of gambling that's going on in the United States today absolutely unprecedented, or have there been other periods in our history or even in the history of other countries that are comparable or maybe even exceed what we're doing now? I think there's always been a lot of gambling in, in, in the U.S. I think most of it's been kind of off the books. So it doesn't leave as much of a record as it does now. You know, definitely in the 19th century, people were doing a lot of gambling. France from about the in the 17th, 18th century was a real hotbed of gambling. And, you know, a lot of other countries have been, too. Australia's always been, you know, one of the countries kind of vying for the title of the world's, you know, home of the world's biggest gamblers, and so is China. So I think, you know, we are definitely gambling a lot now, but we've been doing it for a pretty long time. So... And I actually was looking for a a technical answer. Would you then say that what's happening now is not unprecedented? It's just that it's more out in the open? Or would you say, in fact, it was probably more in uh, 16th century France than it is now? Or have you never done a comparative analysis? And as a scholar, are you uh, reluctant to say anything as bold and grand as I've suggested? Yeah, it's pretty. It's. I think it'd be pretty difficult, if not impossible, to do an actual analysis because, you know, there's no record of how much people were playing friendly games between each other back in the 16th century. You know, I think you can just look at this country and say, you know, yeah, we've got people, you know, talking in journals and diaries and stuff about playing poker and playing other games pretty early on. And yeah, you know, they weren't doing it on television and watching it on television, but they were still doing it. So it looks like there's a lot more gambling going on now, but there actually has always been a lot of gambling happening here. I see. A lot more of it's above ground. Maybe the uh, the old pools that people had, the number runners maybe have diminished, but the total amount of gambling that people see may not be more than the addition of what they didn't see and what they did see before. Yeah, that's, def- that's definitely true. Okay, well, we have about a minute left, and I want to 
now move into the future. We have all these casinos opening up. We have all this gambling going on. What would be your prediction of what is going to be happening to the gambling industry in this country over the next 10 years? Do you see it staying roughly about the same? Do you see it dipping? Do you see it continuing to move upward and onward? Well, I think the revenue picture depends a lot on what the general economy does. You know, if if the unemployment rate goes down and people start getting more money in their paychecks and more people are getting paychecks, I think you'll see more gambling because people will have more discretionary income. A lot of it also depends on what Congress does with online gambling. And definitely, if it was legal to play poker online, I think you'd see a lot more of that. And people, you know, that would probably go up. You know, now, this might shift people away from things like lotteries or horse racing or things like that. But I think if you look at what's going on, in the next 10 years, if it's allowed to kind of grow in the free market of gambling, you would see online gambling really taking a bigger, bigger share of that. I see. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. David, this was, in my view, I've interviewed a lot of people. This is my most interesting interview you have provided me with, and I really appreciate your time. I hope we can bring you back on. I have a million other questions that flow from all the answers you've given us today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Ashley. It's great to be with you. That was David Schwartz, the director of the UNLV Center for Gaming Research. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we'll be back with more House of Cards. Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. I just wanted to uh, mention something, that if any of you have any poker questions that you would like to ask, we are always interested in your questions and comments about the show, about the guest strategy questions. They could be practical questions about where and how to find the game. Send your questions to info at houseofcardsradio.com. And you can also get our tweets on Twitter at www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. We're very interested in them. And of course, if they're particularly interesting, we'll put them on the air and answer them here in our segment of Mailbag. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. Info at houseofcardsradio.com and www.twitter.com slash HOC radio. Hey, you looking for poker tournaments or the latest promotions at Foxwoods, Mohegan Sun, and Twin River? Or want to find out what's happening in Las Vegas, Atlantic City, and other casinos around the country? Then check out New England Gaming News for all the latest news, events, and hot casino action from around the region. Visit the NEGN.com and sign up for exclusive specials and promotions. That's www.thenegn.com. The New England Gaming News, New England's only resource for complete casino and poker news. This is House of Cards Radio with Ashley Adams. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, they all adore if they think he's a righteous dude. Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of guests on on this show, and uh, I don't know many of them before we start to talk, but this is one guy that I consider my friend. We've known each other for a long time. We've met a number of times in Las Vegas. We have a lot of mutual friends. 
He's not just a poker writer and thinker. He's also a great conversationalist and a deep thinker about a lot of topics. And I'm really pleased that he could join us. His name is Alan Schoonmaker, and uh, I think you'll enjoy hearing him talk. Alan, are you there? I sure am, Doug. Glad to be here. Doug, I'm Ashley. Doug. Doug, Doug is the producer. Where the hell did that come? Jesus. We're great hey, friends. Uh, I, 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 I friends. really got to stop to taking those double-strength uh, stupidity pills. I really do. You know? <laughs> Regular strength is adequate. That's all right. You're, you're excused. Uh, I, I had to ask how to pronounce your last name. But truly, I want to get to a couple of things. But first, why don't you just tell our listeners a little about your background so that they have some sense of uh, who you are? Well, I have a Ph.D. in industrial psychology from Berkeley. I was on the faculty at UCLA and Carnegie Mellon. Then I went to the Catholic University of Louvain as a research advisor, as a Ford Fellow. I went to uh, Carnegie, pardon me, I went to Merrill Lynch as manager of management development. Then I ran a consulting company internationally uh, for about 25 years. And since then, I've been uh, a poker writer and uh, poker degenerate. Okay, how how did you do? Did you like live in New York and retire to Las Vegas and figure you couldn't stay idle, so you had to write, or how did you get to be a poker writer? Well, I I wrote my first book, uh, The Psychology of Poker, really to teach myself the psychology. Uh, I wasn't that happy at all with the books on psychology and I'm an active kind of learner. I, I'm not really good at just sitting back and doing things. So I sat down and started writing stuff up and uh, the longer I went at it, the more I learned. And so I, I then had the opportunity to uh, send it to 2 plus 2 and I had the benefit of working with uh, Mason Malmuth and David Sklansky, and they're highly critical guys. And so they took a manuscript that wasn't uh, as well-written as I'd like it to be, wasn't as well-organized as it should have been, and we combined their strategic stuff uh, with my, my psychology. And David came up with the suggestion that we call it the psychology of poker, uh, as opposed to what I had originally called, wanted to call it, as a companion volume to his The Theory of Poker. I see. Very interesting. And you've written how many books now? Well, I've written, I wrote five books before I started writing about poker. And then I've written uh, four books about poker. And then I wrote this last book, Do You See Why, with David Sklansky. And it's really how to apply poker and other kinds of different sorts of thinking to a wide variety of problems. Well, let's, let's get to that. Um, give us an example of how you apply. I mean, it's actually, it's a very interesting equation. Who would be interested in applying poker thinking to problems outside of the poker world? I understand the inverse of that. I understand why you would apply certain reasoning and logic from the world of reason and logic poker to be a better poker player, but who would be interested in taking a poker player's way of thinking of problems and applying it to life in general? Well, let's take one of the points we make in Do You See Why. Uh, David calls it the fundamental theorem of investing. 
And by chance, uh, Peter Lynch, who's right out in your part of the country, he's the vice chairman of Fidelity, and he used to be the manager of the Magellan Fund, uh, which was spectacularly successful, uh, said, if you want to learn how to become a good investor, play poker. Because poker forces you to do two things. To think about risk in an objective, realistic way, and to get into other people's heads. And you can't play poker without doing both of those things. And you don't, you can't make a whole lot of decisions without doing both those things. That's true. That's true. So what other things do you apply poker thinking to? Well, uh, um, let, let's take a decision about any sort of risking a risky activity like should Getting i married. fly a, oh god <laughs> that one i'm not too good at that one but uh, <laughs> let's uh, let, let's take let's keep it uh, in 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 more uh, economic kinds of terms okay i'm i'm on this coast i'm i'm, I'm 2000 odd miles away from uh, new york and i wonder I want a job. I, there's a pretty good job there, but I've got a low probability of getting it. Most people don't really estimate probabilities accurately at all. Poker players do. We know that if something is um, a 15% chance of success, it's not worth doing. But if it's a 22% chance of working, it is worth doing. So I make a probability estimate of what's going to cost me to fly across the country in terms of time and money. Uh, what are my probabilities of getting the job? What is that job worthwhile for me to do? In other words, I'm doing a risk-reward assessment in a more accurate way than most people do. Most people think it'll happen or it won't happen, or maybe it'll happen, or probably it'll happen, but they don't put values on any of the variables and without values that's a guess so all right let's let's take an equation let's say um i'll take my daughter for example my daughter yeah. is uh working at one firm she is a counselor for therapy uh for kids with autism and she's thinking of well should i move to boston i, I work now in charlotte north carolina an opportunity has come up in boston uh that it's, I, I can get a job up there. How do I decide whether it makes sense to move from my the job that I like pretty well, but it's not the greatest job in the world, <clears throat> to another possibility up in Boston that will pay more? Um, but on the other hand, I don't really know how much I'm going to like it, and the expenses are going to be higher. How would she go about using poker logic? She happens to be a poker player to um, to figure that out. Well, the critical factor in poker is converting everything into numbers. As, as long as things aren't numbers, it's, you, you really can't do it very well. So what you do is you take all of the positive values and say, where's the probability that I'll be happier here? How much do I have to reduce that happiness by the greater cost of living? How much more money am I going to get, and how does that relate to the cost of living? Oh, Boston and Massachusetts also has spectacular taxes, which I have to factor into it. Then you got to put a, 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 a number on 
on weather. She may like Boston weather better or she may dislike it. In other words, it's taking all of these numbers and putting them into uh, an equation regarding them as betaoids. Regarding the the betaoids? Pardon me, uh, betaoids is a is a math term for uh, anytime you have a predictive equation, you have four variables and you put beta weights on them. What's a beta weight? A beta weight is the the importance that it has. For oh. example, okay, uh, you put a numeric value yes. uh, on the importance of something, so it's a, f- a factor. So if something is and then you the most it infor- times the probability that it will occur. So give me an example if you can, of such an equation. It didn't okay. Like, go ahead. Um, I'm thinking of buying... I'll take something that I'm working on right now. Uh, as many people know, the Las Vegas real estate market is severely depressed. Uh, I am seriously considering buying some investment real estate. I have to work out what's the probability that uh, I will achieve a a, a gain by it, and of course, how much I will gain by it. What's the probability that I will lose by it, including translation, pardon me, a transfer cost, because as you know, every time you buy or sell a piece of real estate, uh, it costs you a very substantial amount of money for closing costs, real estate. Uh, taxes, uh, realtor uh, commissions, and so on. And so you, what you try to do is say, put all these variables into it and say, how important is this? How much is the cost? What's the probability of success? And then you add them all together, and sometimes you find that the decision that looked pretty good is dumb. Or sometimes you find that something is much more attractive than you thought because you've considered more variables and you've stuck numbers onto them. The, the great problem people have when they make decisions is that they don't really consider enough variables and they certainly don't consider probability theory. I think you're probably right. I think there's something that people ne- rarely, if ever, consider when they're thinking about making money and money-making opportunities that you did not mention, and I'm wondering how you would factor this in, which is you, you did a good job of figuring out what the gain would be if you were to measure the probability of something occurring times the benefit that might occur. Um, but what you didn't include is how important the gain that you might achieve, how important that gain is to the quality of your life. Oh, yeah. Right? That's a really important thing that people, I mean, if, for example, if I had an investment opportunity where I could invest um, $10,000 and I have a, you know, one in 10 chance of um, multiplying that by 100. Somebody might say to me, well, you'd be crazy not to take it because you have a one in 10 chance of something that could be uh, 100 times greater. Mm-hmm. But it may be that having that $10,000 and not investing it, but having it with certainty, 100% certainty, my quality of life is much better than if I lost the $10,000. But if I increased my net worth by a million dollars, it might be that my quality of life would not improve all that much at all. So the risk, although the, the equation makes it look like I should absolutely risk that $10,000 uh, as a 
practical matter, it wouldn't make sense to do it because having another million dollars in my life, that's, of course, not the case for me right now, but having another million dollars wouldn't be worth the risk of the $10,000 because I'm not going to increase my quality of life much at all by having another hundred thousand, uh, another million dollars. You yeah, understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. In fact, we have a wonderful chapter, uh, almost entirely written by David. I just did a little editing called "A Bird in the Hand is Worth Several in the Bush." There you go. And it said, "Well, let's say I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but uh, look, we'll use your ten thousand. And you you have a ten percent chance of increasing that to three hundred thousand dollars, which means you got a plus EV of twenty k. Right. You shouldn't do it if that ten k is more valuable to you than the additional money. And we dealt with the factors that you have to consider, and one of them, of course, is the value in terms of your lifestyle. And the second thing, of course, is how you're going to feel about yourself if you lose it. Right. Or the stress of the money riding, the time when you're oh. waiting to see. I mean, that could be deadly, literally. Absolutely. <clears throat> In fact, I know of people who have screwed up their lives by taking chances even when they succeeded. They became mental wrecks. Right. Well, that gets back to poker because there are people who could easily if done numerically, could easily afford to play higher stakes. And they're very good players, so they could at least theoretically increase their hourly win rate because they're winning players. So if they played higher and if the games are relatively equal in difficulty, they could make more money per hour. But for psychological reasons, they will never play higher because no matter how much more money they might make an hour, it's not worth the increase of the stress, just the psychological stress of playing bigger than they feel comfortable playing, even though feeling comfortable may not be a product of how much their bankroll really could survive. They just don't feel comfortable, and so they never play larger than, I don't know, one, two, no limit, because the prospect of playing two, five, or five, five, even though their bankroll could afford it, psychologically they can't afford to play with those swings. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, Many years ago, in a card player article, I coined the term psychological bankroll, which is exactly what you just talked about. Ah, I've never seen that. I've read card player. I've read you in card player, but I've never read that article. It's called, what's, do you remember the title of the article? Or I just Google I'll, I'll psychological bankroll. I'll find it for you. and I'll, I'll send it to you. I, 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 I can't remember the exact title of the article, but... I dealt with exactly that issue, and I pointed out that Bill Gates plays three six and four eight and five ten. All right, his psychological <laughs> right. bankroll is trivial, and he could he could play fifty thousand, hundred thousand without even noticing it. You know, right, right. But he plays he's playing for fun, and he doesn't want to have enough money. He doesn't want to have money involved. And I know some people. I I I used to play with a guy, I won't mention his name, and he was a crapshooter, and we, were, we used to play 4-8 or thereabouts, and if he took a bad beat at the 4-8 table, he'd go over to the crap table and drop a grand. <laughs> <laughs> All right? I'm serious. And this guy had, believe me, he, he, could, he could drop a grand uh, a day for the rest of his life, and it wouldn't bother him too much. All right? But he hated to lose at poker. And he played at low-stakes poker for two reasons. 
One was the psychological bankroll, and the second was he didn't want to play smart guys. He was he was a fairly old. He was even older than I am, and I'm ancient. <laughs> uh, and uh, he didn't want to be up against these tricky kids. Well, let's take let's take something that happened when you were out here. Uh, we have a lot of mutual friends who used to play several events in the World Series of Poker, and now all they play is a seniors event. Why and is they, that? Oh, because they, they 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 don't want the they don't want to cope with the kids. The kids are too <laughs> damn smart. They are really terrifyingly smart. In fact, uh, I I've got an article coming out in Card Player real soon called uh, "Why Do Kids Dominate the World Series of Poker Championship." We talked about that in the discussion group. I, just so folks who may not know, Alan Schoonmaker lives in Las Vegas, and there's a actually twice a week people get together and have different topics of conversation. And I remember either a Monday or a Wednesday, you brought that up, which is why do we keep banging our heads against the wall? Maybe they're just too smart for us. That was the question. And and they're too smart for a number of reasons. And you know what the biggest reason is? Tell me your opinion on that. Well, there's, 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 I, I put three. There's four reasons they dominate. We got about a minute, so can you summarize okay. it quickly? Okay. They got more endurance. They're more open-minded, and they're using the new exciting tools like hand-tracking software, which the old guys don't even think about using. And, believe it or not, they've got more experience in enormous tournaments. If you play live, you can play a few of those tournaments every year. If you play online, you can play two of them a day. That's right. Thousands of people. And so you have the amazing situation that a kid's got more experience than a more experienced player. <laughs> you know, it's true, and there's a lot of ore here to be mined. We'll have to have you come back on and do it again. Alan, you're always a wonderful guest. Uh, it's Alan Schoonmaker, who's just written a book that is spelled D-U-C-Y, but is pronounced D-U-C-Y, and uh, wrote it with David Sklansky, writes regularly for Card Player. Alan, great guest. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I loved it. Okay, great. Take care, Alan. Uh, It was Alan Schoonmaker. We're going to take a commercial break, and we'll be back with the mailbag. Hi, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. I just wanted to let you know about a newspaper in the New England area. If you're looking for poker tournaments or the latest promotions at Foxwoods, Mohegan Sun, Twin River, or if you want to find out what's happening in Las Vegas, Atlantic City, or other casinos around the country, then I recommend you check out New England Gaming News for all the latest news, events, and hot casino action from around the region. You can do that in one of two ways. You can either pick up their free copies at gambling venues throughout New England, or you can visit them at www.gamblingnews.com. The N-E-G-N, T-H-E-N-E-G-N dot com and sign up for exclusive specials and promotions. That's www.thenegn, T-H-E-N-E-G-N dot com. The New England Gaming News, New England's only resource for complete casino and poker news. Great Moments in History In 1755, Casanova was arrested in the city of Venice, Italy, for immoral acts. You lived life with a big L. And sometimes I suffered pain with a big P. On June 3rd, 2008, House of Cards Radio begins podcasting. Go to houseofcardsradio.com 
and click on the podcast button for all recent show downloads. You're listening to House of Cards on the House of Cards Radio Network. Check us out at houseofcardsradio.com. To the House of Cards. Time we both quit. You don't like losing to me, and I don't like winning from you. You're gonna sit down. You're gonna play poker. I have a suggestion, friend. The trouble with you is you don't enjoy the game for its own reward. Stimulation, relaxation, pleasant association, and the interesting conversation. Shut your mouth. Welcome back, listeners. This is Ashley Adams. You're listening to House of Cards. I'm joined by my producer, Dave Weishattle, for this segment, as I always am. This is the mailbag segment. And uh, what do we got this week? We got a lot of response from your interview with I, Nelson Rose, about the interstate gambling, intrastate gambling, excuse me. And right. uh, I picked out one of them from Alan from Huntsville, Alabama, and I have no clue where he hears our show from. But uh, here's it on the internet. Probably. It must be, must be the internet or iPod. He's or... living with his mom in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I guess so. But he wants to know uh, what is your opinion? Do you think any state will pass an intrastate gaming law in the near future? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> I happen to be an expert on things that are a matter of opinion, Dave. Um, I think not. I think that before any of the states get around to passing an intrastate. Uh, gambling, gambling law, gaming law, that uh, we will do something nationally that will make those state laws unnecessary. Um, I don't know. I'm hoping that uh, after this election in November, which is a big one, that we may do something. But uh, I think New Jersey is close to passage, and I guess California, California. you're telling me, is just backed away from it, right? Yeah, Alan uh, mentioned California, Bill, uh, which they actually withdrew because... Basically, everyone hated it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> PPA hated it. Uh, anyone in the gaming industry hated it because basically what California was trying to create was three gaming hubs that were licensed by the state but keep everyone out. Like uh, Right. Just so Poker our listeners and, know what we're talking about because we don't. Kind of, <laughs> well, speak for yourself. Yeah. Uh, the, it, just because it's a little bit like inside baseball. If you didn't follow the conversation with uh, Nelson uh, a couple of weeks ago, some states are considering passing legislation that would allow internet gaming within the state for state residents only and in california the sites would be sponsored by three different um sources i don't even know what you'd call them but like they since they have so, three different types of gambling in california you have they, the they indian call them hubs hubs there you they go call them hubs indian you have racetracks and you have poker rooms that one of each of those would have gotten an intrastate site that you could play on if you were from California. But the legislation prohibited and made illegal playing on any non-intrastate uh, Internet site. So if you played on PokerStars You'd be or a criminal. Full t- yeah. you could have your funds uh, taken and you could be fined and uh, sent to uh, a place where they don't play poker at all. So that would be awful. So the PPA opposed it, and I guess people said, well, screw this, we'll just back away. Is, is that too much power for a state to have regarding, I mean, it seems like they want to get into the business of poker and not regulated. I mean, they're 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 basically putting online gaming into entities that don't know how to do online gaming. 
I mean, it seems like full tilt would be great because they have the facilities, they ha- they have the know-how, they have the people who can staff yeah. it. Well, the so. problem is you have this absurd national law that the rest of the world <laughs> says is absurd, the UIGEA, and uh, well, it, it, we're trying to contrive means around yeah, it. Yeah, you, you're going to do an end run around the right. federal law. which And so the the state laws are by definition, contrived and ridiculous. So I think the, the answer is to do what Barney Frank and Mendez are trying to do, which is to have a, a national regulated Internet poker uh, entity to allow it to be regulated and taxed. It could produce hundreds of billions of dollars a year in revenue. I don't know if that's right. I mean, when you get into the billions, I get a little confused. But a lot of revenue, a lot of money. <laughs> Um, allow people to play, allow us to fund it, and tax it and regulate it and, you know, put some money into gambling addiction so that those people that get addicted to gambling will have somewhere to go. So well, what Alan, else you got? Well, Alan actually has a second part, and he wants to know uh, if you ever played down south. Yes. Uh, where at? Where? I've played. He's from Alabama, so I'm I've I'm played in Alabama. Uh, I've played in a private game in the woods. I think I told you it was like my deliverance experience <laughs> where I drove on a dirt road into the woods and found a game that was fun. I've played a lot in Mississippi. Uh, Tunica, Mississippi, and uh, down in Bluxy and Gulfport, and I just came back from a trip to Louisiana, which I talked about, and that's the South. Played a lot in Florida. Uh, played in North Carolina at the Cherokee, and I've played in home games around uh, Columbia uh, that my daughter set me up with, and a couple that I found on my own. So yeah, I played. So you well, want to invite well, me to a game? Al, well, Alan's inviting you, so Alan, I'm handing over your email to Ashley right. right now. I'm 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 there, man. Well, next time I'm in Alabama, I'd love to play. I wonder if he plays with Hoyt Corkins. He mentions his name, but uh, that's where Hoyt's from. Yep. So, yes, I will. Well, what let's else go to the got? other direction. You just came back from up north, Montreal, into the uh, the funkiest poker room that well, you were describing. I, I wouldn't call it funky. I'd call it classy. But uh, just to set it up, I was doing a training for my day job. I'm a trainer and a negotiator for teachers. We have a conference once a year in Williamstown, which is in the northwest corner of Massachusetts. And I took the opportunity when I was not otherwise engaged to drive up through Vermont, played poker in Vermont in a home game I was invited to, and then went up to Montreal. And Montreal has the Casino de Montreal, which is a great, well, I don't know if it's a great casino. It's a beautiful casino. I don't play any of the other games, but I did go to their poker room, which has only been open for about a year. And it's up on the third floor. They have a special escalator that goes there. The escalator is absolutely wild. It's it's like a tunnel and you go through it, and you emerge into this dark black with chrome, uh, high-intensity lighting of the tables. Very cool place. I mean, really very, very Dude, that's uh, funky. sophisticated. That's oh, well, my okay. definition that's funky? of funky. When I hear funky, I think kind of um, grungy or um, not classy. Oh, 1978 disco kind of thing. Right. right. Yeah. But this is, I thought, very classy looking. Okay. Almost like, like Paris, you know, which I've played in. Classier than the uh, Aviation Club, in my opinion. Anyway, I found that they only have no limit. One, two, two, five, five, five. And then on weekends, they sometimes get a 2550. No stud, no Omaha, no pineapple, uh, no badoogie. Um, and the games are populated a couple or three serious players, a lot of casual players. I think they would be profitable. But there is one major problem it's a monopoly there are no competing casinos in montreal that have poker from what i could tell and the rake 
is... Well, that must be astronomical. I think it's pretty high. It's For the 1-2 game, it's 10% up to 7 Whoa, okay. With an additional dollar taken out for the bad beat. Uh, the 2-5 game, it's a 10% to a maximum of 10 and with a dollar taken out. And for the really big games, uh, the 5-5, five, five, I think, but certainly the 25-50, it's a maximum of $20 that they take out of the pot, which is, to me, so big that it's not beatable unless you have horrid, deep-pocketed players. But I did have a good time there. How'd you make out? I won quite a bit of money and uh, enjoyed it and met some nice people. I, I decided, though, to limit my time. I got very lucky. I got hit by the deck. My second hand, I was dealt aces. And had a guy that called me, and uh, I stacked him. I took his stack of two or three hundred, and then I decided my last hand was going to be my next hand, and I was dealt a king and a queen suited from uh, under the gun. I would have been the big blind, so I decided to leave this hand, and I got king queen. Um, guy raised from five to fifteen with five callers, so I called, and then the flop was king king deuce, so I hit kings on the flop. And I stacked another guy when he went all in because he hit kings, but he had a weaker kicker. And I left up many hundreds of dollars. So it was very, very sweet. Let me ask you, it's the only poker room in the area, so the skill level of the players must be pretty high there. Well, there was, as I said, uh, the game that I was in, my sample size is very small. I played for about two hours at uh, one table, but I did... See, I was making your win and more impressive. You should no, go, no, 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 go no, along no, with no, it. No, 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 no. I mean, you can't base anything on... 200 hours, let alone two. <laughs> but I did survey the room, and I would say, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that there were a couple or three good players at each table, but that left six or seven not good players at each table. From what I could tell, again, limited sample size, uh, I think the serious good players from Montreal are going to go to Foxwoods, or they're going to go down to Pittsburgh, or they're going to go to California um, for now. Now, maybe they'll develop... The room, uh, it was a great place. and uh, but the, exchange, the exchange rate is pretty good, too. Well, uh, that's another story for another day because <laughs> okay. uh, we're out of time. But, okay. uh, listeners, thanks for listening. Come back next week. Uh, good night and good luck. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.